Hello everyone and welcome back to episode number 8 of Immunology and Beyond and today we're going to be continuing our interview with Dr. John Paul Oliveria. While part 1 focuses on his research that he did during his PhD where he focused on the role of B cells and understanding the mechanisms through which they affect and play a role in allergic asthma and as well as provide some valuable insight and advice to current graduate students, the second part focuses more on his current postdoc research as well as kind of the process that he went through in deciding to choose his current postdoc at Stanford University. And we found that this was going to be very valuable for any current graduate students who are thinking about continuing with a postdoc position once they conclude their current PhD. He also provides very good insight into the research that he's currently working on at Stanford University, where he's using very novel techniques such as mass cytometry and multiplex ion beam imaging in order to understand different molecules and cells that are involved in changing the blood brain barrier during aging and Alzheimer's disease. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to reintroduce once again Dr. John Paul Oliveria. So after finishing your PhD, you've gone through the experiments, you've gone through the different projects and stuff like that. So what were really the factors that actually drew you to stay within academia as a postdoc? So honestly, I think mainly curiosity. I really liked all of the various research experiences I've had at the hospitals I worked at before and during grad school too. And I really enjoyed my PhD experience as well, like I mentioned. Um, I also started to think about academia as being a good career path for me to pursue because not only did I enjoy the teaching and leadership roles associated with being an academic, but I also really found that doing research and managing groups of students was something I actually really did enjoy. And as my PhD was nearing completion, and after talking to my supervisor, Dr. Gail Gavro, and my committee members, Drs. Paula Byrne, Roma Semi, Martin Stanfley, and Mark Larche, they told me that considering doing a postdoc might be a good next step for reaching my career goals. So your initial postdoc was at McMaster. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, so my initial postdoc was actually only four months long from September to December 2017. What were your main findings from that? In short, there actually wasn't really any main findings during the four short months that I did as a postdoc. But I mentioned before, I previously worked um, with Genentech in one of my B-cell studies. And luckily enough, Gail had another study collaborating with Genentech that needed someone experienced to kind of like develop experimental methods and protocols for. She kind of like thought of me as someone that could kind of like initiate this. So this was a challenge because I only had four months um, to kind of like get the ground running on, on, on this new project. And we didn't complete the clinical trial before I left. So I don't have any specific findings, but I did develop a nasal biopsy processing protocol um, to obtain cells from nasal biopsies. Uh, I developed a few flow cytometry panels evaluating various cell types in nasal biopsies, and I also developed a nasal biopsy collection protocol along with an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, Dr. Jonathan McLean at McMaster, to actually extract nasal biopsies adequate for research as well. The clinical study didn't start until spring of 2018, so a couple of months after I left, and the first abstracts are actually just being presented earlier this year at a virtual American Thoracic Society conference. I can imagine in the four months, because I guess in research, four months goes by really quickly. So yes, this is the fact that you were able to do that, and you mentioned just adding things to your toolbox. So being able to develop things for a clinical trial in that specific field or in that specific manner. And to like be honest too, um, I it was mainly a 
four-month postdoc because I was transitioning um, into the actual postdoc position that I was going to go to. But since it was in the U.S., I needed to actually get my degree and get all of the requirements done. And then it took a couple of weeks to actually get my visa. So Gail um, kind of like just gave me an opportunity to keep on working on some research while I was waiting for my paperwork to go through. So when you were applying for that paperwork or when you were thinking about going abroad, so were the factors that actually led you to pursue your postdoc outside of Canada and specifically at Stanford? Uh, so for this, I heavily relied on advice from my supervisor and my committee members. So just as an example, my supervisor completed her BSc and her MSc at Guelph University. Then she did her PhD at McMaster University and then moved on to a postdoc at Johns Hopkins University before actually arriving at her faculty position at McMaster. So their advice to me was to pursue a postdoc at a research intensive university and to choose a topic of research that was something I enjoyed that was slightly different from my PhD and to continue gaining practice, asking new research questions and learning new techniques and concepts. And again, we're back to this kind of like collection of various tools. I was interested in Stanford for kind of like three reasons. Um, one, from world research rankings, Stanford is a highly ranked school with excellent research output and world-class researchers and facilities. Two, I really wanted to have a change in environment. Um, I, I've been to the West Coast a couple of times, like I mentioned before, and I actually knew I wanted to do my postdoc in the West Coast, despite applying for and interviewing at universities in the East Coast. Um, British Columbia and California were actually my target schools um, that I wanted to go to. And it just so happened that several professors I was interested in working with was actually at Stanford. And this kind of like leads me to three. The third reason I wanted to work at Stanford was because of the research I wanted to do. So aging and Alzheimer's research was something I was really interested in. And I was also really interested in working with uh, more new types of tools for multiplexing, um, such as mass cytometry or something that's kind of like more new right now is kind of like multiplex ion beam imaging. And the person to work with for that was indeed Dr. Sean Mendel, who is a world expert um, at these technologies. So what are you currently working on in this lab? Um, so it's interesting because when I was looking for postdocs, I was actually... I was always given advice to consider changing my institution, my research area focus, and my techniques I'd be working with. And I ended up choosing to change all three, which when I moved to Sean's lab. So in my PhD, I was at McMaster studying B cells in allergies and asthma, and mainly worked with clinical trial samples, flow cytometry, and fluorescent imaging. Um, but when I moved for my postdoc, I moved to a different country. I changed my research focus to now studying aging and Alzheimer's disease within the context of the blood-brain barrier. And I am working on fairly novel multiplexing technologies, which include high-dimensional mass cytometry, or commonly known as CYTOF, and high-dimensional imaging um, using multiplex ion beam imaging, or now trademarked by the name MibiScope. Specifically, I'm actually working on developing a high-dimensional imaging panel for MibiScope, focusing on evaluating markers for different glial cells and neurons, but most importantly, markers for the blood-brain barrier components to understand the dynamics that the blood-brain barrier has in healthy aging and Alzheimer's disease. Specifically, this panel is heavily focused on the blood-brain barrier components, which includes the vascular endothelial cells, the basement membrane markers, different pericyte type markers, which are the cells that maintain the structure of the blood vessel integrity, and also astrocyte markers, since astrocyte and feet are the final component of the blood-brain barrier that is closest to the brain parenchyma. And this interface is the primary site of glucose transport, for example, and other brain metabolic processes. Um, so 
I got interested in pursuing Alzheimer's research because uh, we have a continually growing aging population. Um, and one of the major and most devastating diseases of aging is dementia, of which Alzheimer's is actually the most prevalent. So, for example, in Canada alone, uh, we have just over 700,000 Canadians with Alzheimer's or with other dementias. And by 2030, this number is expected to be around 1 million in Canada, which is projected to cost the healthcare system about $20 billion. And knowing that this would be detrimental to our healthcare system, the Canadian government actually released Canada's first dementia strategy in 2019, which focused on the need to research Alzheimer's and dementia to help develop a treatment or cure for this devastating disease, and basically just to understand dementia more through research means. So to date, there is still no therapy that actually would reverse the clinical effects of Alzheimer's disease, that even though there are a few small molecule therapies that slow down the clinical effects of dementia, but none of these treatments will prevent the progression of Alzheimer's disease or reverse it. We still have a lot to learn about Alzheimer's, and I want to contribute to that research by building a spatial atlas of the blood-brain barrier to understand how it may potentially play a role in the progression of disease and maybe even be a therapeutic target in the future. I'm particularly interested in evaluating the BBB in archival hippocampi tissues of Alzheimer's disease brains in humans and comparing it to healthy controls and to look at the spectrum of Alzheimer's severity too, neuropathologically and clinically. So this is possible to do because I have access to a lot of donated human brains from patients who died of Alzheimer's disease and their clinical records before their death. And again, like in my PhD, I'm kind of like marrying my interest to understand an important and devastating disease. So this is kind of like reminiscent of what you were doing in your PhD. So before switching over, um, doing research on Alzheimer's, was this a topic that you always had at the back of your mind? Did you go about picking this topic or picking this um, disease to study? Uh, so that's a that's a great question. And I think uh, I switched into kind of like this mindset more on a strategic type level. One, I knew that multiplex ion beam imaging and a lot of the technologies that I work with are not necessarily widespread in Canada right now. So I wanted to gain postdoctoral experience in a technique that was that will hopefully be sought after by Canadian institutions. And two, I think just from a, a disease perspective, Alzheimer's is one of those that just has so much more that needs to be done and so much more that needs to be researched because we're still not knowing exactly how to treat this devastating disease. And I think from like a research funding perspective too, lots of governments around the world are actually pouring in a lot of money doing a lot of dementia type strategy research because people are just dying. And the more people that have this disease, it just heavily impacts our health economy. Um, and also too, not only that, it's not only devastating for the people that are experiencing dementia, but it's also really, really hard on families that have to take care of um, their family members that are ill with dementia. So as I briefly mentioned before, multiplex ion beam imaging or Mibiscope is a highly dimensional imaging platform with the capability to visualize more than 40, 40 protein targets simultaneously. So the actual experimental process is actually very similar to that of immune histochemistry, but the difference kind of lies in two major aspects. One, the building of the panel, because now you have to take in consideration 40 different proteins that you might be interested in looking at, and two, the analysis of the data. So in the building of the imaging panel of protein targets, this step actually requires a bit of attention because 
since Mimicoscope is a new technology, I actually have to make my own metal label antibodies, so custom antibodies that I have to kind of like conjugate myself. And this takes a lot of testing and quality control and validation to ensure that the metal type antibody is indeed yielding pathology approved staining patterns. And also I'm in constant communication with trained pathologists to ensure the panel I'm building to study the blood-brain barrier is of the highest quality. So you're talking about this multiplex IM beam, and I, I'm very familiar with uh, flow cytometry. You're talking about all these clinical samples that you're using. I was wondering if in with this multiplex IM beam imaging system, are you limited by the number of cells that you that you have? Like, do you do you find that the system is easier to use for something that samples that are very precious, or are you limited? limited by the number of cells? Uh, so that's, a, I think the question um, is more so not necessarily for imaging, but more so for kind of like mass cytometry. Um, so you're not necessarily limited by the number of cells because, for example, if you have very rare, rare cell samples, there's like different um, methodologies that you can use to kind of like increase that number uh, of cells by um, just adding other types of cells and kind of like doing some experimental things where you can kind of like barcode uh, different samples together to increase your cell numbers. So that's definitely one of like the pluses of, of these technologies is that there's so many different types of applications and tools that are being developed to kind of like study the rare subsets of populations. But um, within the context of imaging, you're not limited to kind of like the rare cell subsets that you see in uh, in the tissues. They'll they'll still be definitely visible. So like, for example, Tregs are very few and far between, and we're able to kind of like detect these regulatory T cells in some of the samples that we look at. So also another follow-up question with that. As it stands, a lot of the imaging and tools that are being used within hospitals is mostly flow cytometry, but do you see the future of this new technology or this new imaging system to be more commonplace? So that's a great question. Actually, um, one of my colleagues and previous lab mates, Dr. Albert Tsai, is a clinical hematopathologist, and he's very versed in kind of like looking at different tools like flow cytometry to evaluate the clinical samples that he uh, looks at as a doctor. And what he's wanting to do is actually to use these new technologies like CYTOF or multiplex IM beam imaging uh, to be able to kind of like hopefully bring that into the clinic. Um, and I think one of the main challenges for that right now is to just make sure that the workflows and the processes can be reproducible. And that, that shouldn't be too, too hard of a problem to solve because at one point before flow cytometry was new. So it's kind of like now just changing your mindset into flow cytometry to mass cytometry, for example. So there's a little bit of work that needs to be done for that, but definitely um, the clinical applications of these of these tools is definitely something in the future. So I also have a question too, taking tools that are typically used for experimentation within research lab, that transition into using it for clinical diagnosis or just for monitoring, is that a process that takes quite a lot of time or is it more constraint on funding, testing? What really is that process? Like what does that entail? For um, the technology type world, you have like this interesting tool like Cytoff or Mibiscope. And one of the main things that you you need to kind of like do initially is to compare them to gold standard techniques. And, and what we do in the lab is, although we're using Mibiscope to generate a lot of our data, we always go back to gold standard techniques. So what we always do, single plex IHCs to make sure that our markers of interest are working on that single plex platform because that's commonly what was used by other researchers or other pathologists in the clinic. And then 
we then compare that with data that we generate with MIBI to make sure that it's comparable to this kind of like single plex gold standard technique. Um, and then from there, you can kind of like move forward into using it more to maybe do some predictive models or maybe some diagnoses. Um, but that's definitely a timeline that I'm not necessarily sure how long it's going to take. It's just a matter of getting the research done and putting in the work. So I'm a question in terms of your postdoc work, has that been really a difficult transition in taking this new technology and trying to apply it now to your work? I think that's uh, <laughs> that's the question I'm still trying to answer. So like I said, I switched fields from my PhD into my postdoc. And I think the first year of my postdoc was just wrapping my brain around the brain, how the brain works, how the brain works in dementia, how the brain works in Alzheimer's disease. And then from there, kind of like reading a little bit more into my specific topic of the blood-brain barrier and kind of like astrocyte heterogeneity within the brain. And that took a little bit of time. So I felt like in my first year, I was like doing another PhD in terms of like, I need to learn and I need to know so many different things. On a technical level, since I, I'm, I'm more of like an experimental type biologist, like I work well with my hands. So um, learning how to do the workflows for MIBI and for CYTOF, it was an easier transition just because it's so comparable to flow cytometry and it's so com comparable to immunosystem chemistry and immunofluorescence. Where the problem lies, like what I was mentioning before, is this panel development, just because you need QCing and validating as you kind of like build your project forwards. One of the other things that is really hard to wrap your mind around is the data that gets generated from these technologies because you just have so much data that you get from a cytop experiment or a MIBI experiment and it actually requires a lot of computational programming to actually analyze and sift through your data so one of the things that I'm learning during my PhD is actually how to code or how I usually say to my colleagues how to implement and run other people's codes that they write for me or write with me because coding is is just something so difficult, but it's definitely necessary to do the type of work that I do now using MibiScope and using um, Cytoff technologies. But one of the major benefits of MibiScope is directly in its name. It allows us to simultaneously visualize and spatially distinguish over 40 targets simultaneously. And this is one of the very few technologies currently available that allows us to actually do this. And like I was mentioning before, the importance of looking directly at your d diseased organs is something that maybe is going to be able to help us do because we're going to get so much spatial type data that is kind of like unprecedented from what we got before using our single plex techniques or our other immunofluorescent type techniques where we can look at a handful of markers simultaneously. So this will be able to allow us to quantify different cells that we're interested in and understand the different cellular microenvironments and cellular interactions and cellular and subcellular localization of different proteins that we're interested in too. So you touched a little bit on starting your postdoc and how it felt like another PhD. So how did your expectations change going from PhD to postdoc? So this is a tough question to answer because during my PhD, Gail basically gave me full autonomy to drive my project and progress for my PhD work. So some of the things that Gail gave me plenty of opportunities to do during graduate school was organize, design, and implement my own work on B-cells, for example. I prepared and submitted my own manuscripts after many, many rounds of feedback and revisions, of course, and also prepared poster presentations and slide decks for oral talks at different conferences. And she also allowed me to make my own mistakes, learn from them while always being available to kind of like bounce ideas with, with her. And she helped guide me to answers when I got stuck. But Gail taught me how to make my own decisions and confidently back it up um, with adequate rationale and background knowledge. So 
as long as things sort of like made sense and were logically planned, she would allow me to conduct experiments and see and see where it goes. I think one of the reasons Gail gave me this much freedom during my PhD was because I've worked with her for two years before actually starting my grad school project. Um, and this meant that I knew how the lab worked. I knew how I worked with Gail and we, can, we had kind of like a good sense of how we worked with each other and how we could communicate with each other. So we definitely had a set supervisor-student relationship. Um, and I would say all that Gail spoiled me in a sense because when I was looking for a postdoc mentor, I wanted to find someone that would actually be willing to give me the same scientific autonomy. And that's why when I was looking for a postdoc mentor, I really wanted to see whether we would work well together. And I did this by having honest conversations with them during interviews and seeing whether or not my expectations and their expectations kind of like matched. And honestly, I feel really, really lucky because I think I found that in, in the lab that I'm in now. I think I work really well with, with Sean. I'm happy to be doing the work uh, for my postdoc in his group. So as a postdoc, Sean set the same expectations that Gail had of me. Um, so generally, as you transition from a PhD student to a postdoc, you should have more confidence in initiating and planning out your experiments and to be able to critically think about different scientific problems and formulate your hypotheses and also be able to problem solve and troubleshoot when you run into problems. But I think the one advice I would give to PhD students considering a postdoc in academia is for you to really find a supervisor that is someone that you respect and would work well with. I have been very lucky because my PhD and postdoc supervisors have been kind, fair, generous, understanding, available for chats and random meetings, and just generally a pleasure to work with. So you also did mention that during your search for your postdoctorate um, supervisor that you asked honest questions. So what are some examples of honest questions that our students should be asking looking for a PhD supervisor or any supervisor? I think I have three main pieces of advice when looking for postdoc positions, and they're one, start early, two, have your PhD research summarized into a 45-minute talk, and have a publication at least, or at least have a manuscript in preparation, and make sure you weigh your options carefully when um, finally deciding to go to academia, and make sure you're asking your friends, your family, your partner, if you have one of your mentors, what their opinions are, and I'll go into this a little bit more in depth. Um, so I say start early because there should be some research on your part done before the actual application process. You should look into various schools you might be interested in attending to see whether or not they have the types of research you're actually wanting to be involved with. And then also do your research on your potential postdoc supervisors too. see what they studied for in their undergrad and their PhD and what they did for their postdoc, because this is probably going to be giving you kind of like an idea of what their root expertise is and then start looking to what their current students are researching because this is going to give you an insight on what they're currently doing too. So once you're excited about a supervisor, email them your CV, a brief cover letter highlighting your interests, and if you know someone, maybe ask for them to introduce you to, to this potential supervisor. I honestly just cold called, emailed several dozen potential postdoc supervisors, some of whom um, I knew through collaborations or conferences, but a bunch of them I actually never personally met at all. And that actually includes Sean. I never met Sean until we started to communicate over email. So basically, don't be afraid to reach out to anyone because honestly, the worst that can happen is that they either don't respond to you or say no. But honestly, people usually respond. So you'll have an answer one way or another. I think another way to look for postdoc positions too is just to check job postings on university websites. Twitter or LinkedIn are also helpful resources too. People are always posting um, positions there. 
And people are usually looking for postdocs, and it's just a matter of whether it's the right postdoc position for you. And I think that's really important. I think also a third way to get a postdoc position is by being recommended directly by either your supervisor or one of the mentors that you know. So when we got into grad school, we were always told that we needed to network. Um, and usually conferences have trainee networking sessions too, but we never really know how who will meet that can probably help us in the future. So when you're looking for a job like a postdoc or other jobs, even outside of academia, don't be shy to ask anyone you might have met or know through your network. Also, after doing all of this preparation, um, you'll eventually get an interview. And every PI does this sort of like differently. But generally, from my experience, from my postdoc interviews in the U.S. at least, I had an initial video call with a potential supervisor, after which they invited me for an in-person interview to visit the lab meet the group, and sometimes meet other people that they either collaborated with from different departments. From my experience, once I got invited to an in-person interview, I actually had to give an hour-long seminar about my PhD research. And my advice for this is to have about a 45-minute talk prepared so you don't go over time, one, and so that you can actually leave some time for some discussion and questions after your talk as well. The talk should generally be about the PhD research, and it helps to have a publication or at least one that's in preparation to present on. And I would say make sure you run your talk with your supervisor or even give a practice talk during lab meeting so you can get feedback to make sure that you're saying things correctly. And I think I mentioned this in one of the earlier questions too, but make sure you know your audience and tailor your talk based on that. So limit your jargon if you know that the people you're presenting to don't have the same technical background as you. And also talk about expectations with the potential supervisor as well, because as much as you're being interviewed by the supervisor and their group, you're actually also interviewing them because you want to make sure that they're a perfect fit for you. So from a research perspective and from a lab perspective, the dynamics sort of like need to kind of like align with what you're looking for. And lastly, once you have an offer or multiple offers, you have to carefully think about whether you are excited to join that group. There's a lot of different factors to consider outside of just the research and the lab environment fit. You have to consider whether or not you're moving to a different geographical location. Is it close or is it far away from your family and friends? And are you okay with moving across the country or even to a different country? And one thing to consider is your salary, whether or not that would benefit, uh, that, that would be enough for rent or daily living and other obligations that you may have to pay for. So basically, just to recap, start looking early for your postdoc position. I started looking about a year out just because I'm neurotic. And I wanted to like make sure something was lined up for when I finished my PhD and also have a presentation of your research prepared and make sure the postdoc position that you accept is the best fit for you and what you actually want to do. I have one question. You mentioned that it's good to have a, a paper or a manuscript that's in preparation when you're presenting. How come you can't present on already published data? Oh, no. So definitely, as long as you're the first author or co-first author on the publication, you can definitely use that as part of your um, research talk that you give for postdoc interviews. You mentioned some of the challenges that you face in your PhD. So reflecting on those challenges in terms of like mental health, going into your PhD, do you feel like you are more or better equipped to deal with the hardships that you face in your postdoc? Just adds maturity and stuff like that through academia. I think this is sort of like a learning process. And as you go through with whatever career path, whether it be postdoc, whether it be anywhere, just making sure you're continually checking in on whether or not you enjoy what you do and you're happy with what you're doing. And you're happy with who you're working for, who you're working with. 
just make sure to always have that continual check-in just because for me personally, I don't believe in doing something that makes me unhappy. And so far, I've been enjoying everything I've been doing um, in my career trajectory. So about checking in with yourself and constantly making sure that this is something that you enjoy. How do you know if it's something that you actually enjoy or versus the challenges that kind of that you do face and that do get frustrated? So how do you delineate between whether or not it's a challenge and you're enjoying the challenge or if it's something that you actually don't like? That's a great question. And if you get to know me a little bit, I just don't go to the lab and do my experiments and then go home and then come back to the lab and do my experiments and then go home. I usually try and get involved in various different aspects um, within the community. And that's for me to give myself different experiences outside of just research. So for example, just being able to go to different workshops and different seminars on different topics could be something like, oh, I think I might like that more than what I'm currently doing. And then other things too, like just different job fairs or different job talks might be um, beneficial too, because what we do in academia, or at least what we do as grad students is we work towards this degree and we work towards this degree by doing the experiments and the research questions that, that we have. And it's usually very specific and it's usually um, quite repetitive. And we, we sometimes forget that there's other job aspects and job prospects out there for us too. And honestly, the only way for you to find that out is to go outside your bubble and either talk to people or go to different workshops, network, um, take a different certificate, for example, that's available to grad students. I think there's just so many things available at the university and outside the university that we as graduate students can take advantage of. And just getting this experience and continual experience will be able to kind of like see whether or not, one, we like what we're doing, or two, can we get introduced to something that we actually would want to do for the rest of our lives, like potential career path, for, for, for example. So in terms of your research or your career from starting an undergrad and going into your PhD and now into your postdoc and all of the bumps and valleys and all the good things that you've experienced, bad things you've experienced, looking back at that, what would you tell yourself when you first started? Uh, so that's a great question because I definitely want to say that I do not have any regrets for the path I've carved thus far. Um, because the successes has been have been good, but the failures were just as great because there were opportunities to become a better researcher, become a better educator, and become a better leader. And my parting advice for young JP and to any eager graduate students right now just starting their PhD or their MSc journey is to have fun. Do what you do because you want to and because you're passionate about it. It's okay to fail. It's okay to be unsure. It's okay to make mistakes and never be afraid to pursue anything that you put your mind to. Thanks, JP, for that advice. I think that's a great reminder of always enjoying the process through the highs um, and the lows. So I've also seen that you are involved in a lot of advocacy for marginalized groups in STEM. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? So, some of the really passionate things about advocacy um, mm. that I'm, I'm really, really, really interested in. Like, for example, like I'm part of the board of directors for Future of Research. And one of the things that we're working with there is building a space for women identified researchers for them to just have a place for them to talk amongst with each other and also maybe even um, figuring out some some policy changes that we could like 
have on a systemic level, for example, too, just because specifically women of color in academia are actually leaving academia and LGBTQ people are also leaving academia. And there's actually been papers published in Nature and Science um, mm -hmm. about this fact, too. So, so yeah, no, I, I tried to like plug in as much as I could, but, mm -hmm. but yeah. Just from like your personal standpoint, why do you think it's important to be part of these things and create these things in academia? Um, so I, I think diversity and representation is just so important um, to have in academia and basically anywhere um, in the job force in in our daily life, just because it brings apart upon different perspectives um, from different people. And with different perspectives, you can understand more. And I know not everyone goes through the same walks of life and some of that can't be changed, but there's a lot of systemic problems that we need to deal with and we need to dismantle and break down because we just want, at least for me, I want there to be more equity and kind of like more fairness, especially within places that I'm going to be working with and working for. Thank you for sharing that with us. I, I was wondering, is there some advice that you have for our listeners uh, for ways to get involved or kind of things they can do to help contribute in dismantling this systemic boundaries that are present for minorities and uh, underrepresented groups within uh, STEM and other institutions? I think the easiest thing to do is to self-educate. Um, one, just there's a lot of resources put out there. There's a lot of things being written in books that, that you can read. And just being aware that this is a problem, because most oftentimes people don't see this as a problem, or sometimes too, if it doesn't affect them, they don't believe it's a problem. So yes, one, self-education is great. Two, just promoting the voices of underrepresented individuals, people in the Black, Indigenous, and, pe and people of color, just promote them and elevate their voices because most oftentimes their voices are stifled. So giving them the space to talk if they want to and just facilitating a good environment and a comfortable environment for just underrepresented people to, to feel like they have a sense of belonging. Um, because most oftentimes, even for me, like I have such amazing mentors and I value their input and kind of like what they've done for me for my career. Of all of my mentors, none of them are Filipino, none of them are gay. And those are two large parts of my identity. And I think for people who are underrepresented, just having visible role models, for example, might be something that can inspire them or might be something that they can get mentorship with with those people too so yeah i think that's just something that we just need to keep be cognizant of um, as we move forward in our careers yeah like i definitely agree with you on that and i also think too like social media has helped a lot with that because even within your institution even though there isn't a lot of representation there anyways um you can always find your community or always find someone who share similar experiences and similar challenges with you like online and stuff. So I think yeah. that also helps out as well. And you're also big with promoting things online. So how has that helped you in your advocacy? So for me, just again, amplifying the voices of the people that need to be amplified because most oftentimes, like I mentioned before, um, it's stifled. So just giving people space and giving people opportunities, I think is is really important. And something outside of, of the podcast, hopefully you guys can promote 
Black in Immunology on Twitter. It's basically Black immunologists all over the world showcasing their their research. So to tune into Twitter. There's there's already like a program already set up, and and it's also not just immunology. Like I know, like in the past, I've I've kind of like tuned into Black and Cancer, Black and Psychom, Black and Physiology. There's just like a, a lot of of this movement moving forward. So just being informed that they're happening and like promoting it within our smaller communities too, and hopefully that can change an impact because I feel like. There's two changes that need to be made. One is implicit within ourselves, and two systemic. And we can't we can't just change one. We need to change both. Yeah. So I definitely agree with you on changes that need to take place systemically, but also implicitly, and especially important in the realm of science. So JP, you mentioned Black and Immuno Week, and I actually went to a lot of the talks during that week, and it was particularly impactful for me because for the whole entire week I was for the first time surrounded by so many black scientists so not only did I get to hear their amazing science but I also got a lot of advice on how to navigate the academic space as a black scientist. So you've also been thinking about a couple initiatives can you explain a bit further? So one of the things I kind of want to, that I'm thinking of trying to like get, get the ground moving on is, I don't know what we're going to call it, I think Women in Research Power Week and just promoting women in STEM. Yeah, that would be really cool. Honestly, thanks for that, JP. That was amazing. Um, thank you for taking the time really to share about your career experience, about your research experience, personal experience, and a whole bunch of advice that you gave us. So I know for myself, one huge thing taking away from this is always to add more tools to your toolbox. No, thank you for having me again. Like this was my first experience doing this. And I see podcasts as another way to disseminate science, a knowledge translation type tool. So I'm really glad that you guys are starting this and that you guys are continuing to do this and for inviting me to share some of my insight and my experiences. Welcome back, everyone. We wanted to thank you for staying until the end of the episode, and we also wanted to give a huge thanks to Dr. John Paul Oliveria for providing such insight into the research that he conducted during his PhD, as well as the current research that he's doing at Stanford University, as well as we wanted to give him a huge thanks for his very candid and very personable answers that he gave and advice that he provided for any students that are currently doing their PhD, as well as their postdoc, and we hope the best for him in his future in Stanford University or wherever he may go after that. We just wanted to remind you that if you haven't already to follow us at Immunology and Beyond on Twitter as well as on Instagram to stay up to date with news related to the podcast. We also wanted to encourage you to consider following the McMaster Immunology Research Center Twitter account as you can be kept up to date with all the research that's coming out of the center where myself, Anna, and Dom work at. And for you to follow that, just look up on Twitter at Mac Immunology. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.